Um, we're going to talk about prayer today. We're going to talk about it for this week and next week. Uh, talk about how we need to approach God. Prayer is simply having productive conversations with the Lord. It's, it's being able to converse with Him and listen to Him. It's just not about you speaking. It's about Him speaking. And for all the things we'd like to say, um, first of all, He knows what you're going to say, so your words are not informing Him of anything. Secondly, we aren't very good communicators with Him when we say them. Our motives are kind of questionable many times, and many times the prayers we pray, even if the motives are right, the prayer may not be right. We may not be asking for the right thing. And so our conversation doesn't do much to stimulate the environment of communication with God unless we know how to do it well, unless we know how to speak to Him well. And generally, He wants us to speak to Him like those who of old spoke to Him and were successful in doing so. And so we're going to look at David today, Psalm uh, 32, and we're going to look at verses 6, excuse me, verse 6, Psalm 32, verse 6. The title of the message is, Timely Upward Conversations, Timely Upward Conversations. Psalm 32, verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters. They will not reach him. Lord, help us as we study. There are three things on this passage about which I'd like to speak to you. One, piety. Two, petition. And three, proximity. Verse 6 follows a good portion, verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 32, where David is talking about his own sin. We don't have the exact moment in his life when he wrote this psalm, but most scholars would say that it was probably a good period after his time of sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Psalm 51 was immediately after the revelation of his sin came to him through Nathan the prophet, which was a year after his sin. But there were consequences to bear, and those consequences were pretty severe. Yet, he came through it, and he realized what the forgiveness of God was like, even in the midst of the consequences. And we believe that this psalm was the culmination of that moment. And the interesting juxtaposition between verse 6 and the preceding verses is that the preceding verses talk about what happens when a man or a woman really blows it. Blessed is the man, it says, whose sins and transgressions are forgiven. I don't know that anybody can find a greater blessing than having all of the consequences of your misdeeds being erased. If you don't feel that that is a really good hallelujah, I mean just spontaneous hallelujah, you don't understand how much you've done wrong and how much you deserve to be punished for it. You can't be blessed with any material blessing that's greater than the release of the consequences of your misdeeds. That is the greatest blessing you can receive. Forgiveness for all your sin. How blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. That's the way David starts. And then he says, when I tried to hold on to my sin, when I wouldn't confess it, he said, my body began to waste away. It was like the fever heat of summer. I just felt this weight on my bones and it just, it was terrible. Brett's paraphrase, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink, I couldn't think. 
Sin just weighed heavy on my soul and it changed my entire disposition. Yet, when I confessed my transgression to the Lord, he forgave. Our God is, is never more amazing than when he hears us talk about what we've done wrong. Most of the time we don't want to talk about what we've done wrong to anybody because we're concerned about how they will feel about us after they hear it. And the reality of them knowing who we really are is painful to us. It's not that they learn what we're not when we tell them we've done wrong. It's that they learn who we are. And we like to have them know who we're not. That's a much better version of us that we like to present to people. Because if they really know who we are, they may not like us anymore. They might change their way of relating to us, think of us differently. And so we do our best to put on these beautiful masks. We don't let people really understand who we are because we're afraid of rejection. The beautiful thing about God, he never rejects us. (laughs) I don't care how much we've done wrong. And our sin, please understand this, our sin is never against anyone more than him. Even though we mess people up individually, we, we really destroy folks' lives with our disobedience. It is never, never more against anyone else than him. And this is why David says, my sin is against you and you only. And he wasn't saying that it didn't hurt others. He just realized how great it hurt him. And yet he does not reject us. Wow. And it's not like our sin is intermittent. It's not like it's unusually unpredictable or it happens every once in a while. It's the every once in a while when we do right. (laughs) I mean, our lives are just filled with mess. And if it's not the deed, it's the thought. If it's not the thought, it's the heart motivation. It's the inclination to do wrong even if we don't do it, all of which are seen by God and all of which demand that the gavel on the bench of eternity is pound guilty, guilty, guilty. And yet, I mean, think about it. It's it's bad enough that people know you who are close to you and and you you understand that they still want to be around you. You don't want them to know anything worse but they still want to be around you. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Unless you think you're really a catch. <laughs> you think you're really something. I'm surprised that people, when they get to know me, really want to hang around me. That's, I, maybe I'm, I've just, at 58, become more self-aware than most. But I'm really shocked that you want to hear anything i got to say. I'm shocked. I remember when you stayed away. You weren't coming. And there were 53 folks that didn't like what I have to say, but they didn't want to go anyplace else. That's the truth. I'm shocked. But think about it. What if somebody could read your every thought, knew your every motivation, knew what you wanted to say to them and didn't? Oh, really? Oh, really? Knew what you were thinking about that other person though you were married to somebody else knew knew what you were thinking no you didn't how long would it take for them to depart from you if they knew your every thought or how long would it take for you to depart from them 
I'm magnifying the mercy of Almighty God because He knows your every thought. He knows all that you want to do wrong and don't. He knows all that you want to say and don't. He knows all that you want to be directed in. And the only reason you're not is because you don't have the resources, influence, and power. And every one of the things above which I said are wrong. And yet he still says, come. And when he recognizes our error in all of its magnitude, he could righteously bring judgment. And nobody could ever call him wrong. Because we deserve it. And yet he meets us with mercy. How blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. You need to talk to God about your sin. And in hopes of not just telling him because he really doesn't need to be informed. So when you tell him that you are a sinner or have sinned, you're really letting him know that you know. How much you know and how much you need to change and how much you need to depart. See, confession is that which gives you the exit for what's wrong on the inside. It's the on-ramp of, 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 excuse me, the exit ramp of stuff that's on the inside and get it out. It's, an, it's a place of portal that allows you to release something that's on the inside. But then not only do we need to have a moment of releasing that which is wrong from the words of our through the words of our mouth, but we also need to have a, a point that says, you know, not only am I recognizing how wrong that is and telling you how wrong it is and letting you know how I know how wrong it is, but I am departing from it. I'm not just looking for absolution. I'm looking for victory. I don't ever want to go back there again. I want to, I want to be able to have a testimony that although I blew it once, not twice, that I found your grace. Your grace empowered me to overcome so I didn't need to come to you one more time to ask you for forgiveness for the same thing. I'm believing you today to have something that allows me to overcome this. You said your grace teaches us to deny ungodliness in Titus and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, Titus 3. That's what his grace teaches us. His mercy offers forgiveness for stuff we've done wrong. His grace teaches us how to live right. So as you are in the business, in the process of receiving his wonderful mercy to be forgiven for everything you've thought, done, and said wrong, he also wants to give you the grace through repentance to begin to live in such a way that you could not have to be always at the spot asking for forgiveness. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It is possible to have victory in this world as a Christian. I do not know what you have seen. I don't know what example you've given. But if the bar's too low, I want you to, want you to know today, I'm intentionally raising it. And that, not on the basis of how good bread is. I know I'm a mess. I know I am prone to do everything and anything wrong at any time. The only reason I've got any, any modicum of victory to be able to share with you is because I know how stupid I am. And as a result, I come to God and say, help this poor sinner. Help this idiot to be right so that people actually think I'm good. I'm not, I'm not talking about putting on a facade. I'm not talking about acting. I'm talking about letting Jesus be the Lord of my life, sit on the throne of my heart, and rule my actions and my words and my thoughts. 
Be like that to me, oh God, so I can be what I need to be to everybody else. That's what victory is. Recognizing when you are not and who he is and letting him take over. Grace of God teaches us to live right. Sadly, most Christians, I'm sorry for getting loud. Sadly, most Christians are satisfied with failure because it's all they've seen and it's all they've known. You come here long enough, by the grace of God, we're going to teach you victory. You don't have to be the 2009 Detroit Lions. For those of you who were not NFL aficionados, they didn't win a game. They were perfectly flawed. Absolute failures. 0-16. That means they played 16 games and won none. That's the way most Christians are. <laughs> my, brother's, <laughs> my brother's having to have a moment here. Most Christians, if they're able to count one area of victory in their life, it usually sounds something like this. Oh, Lord, thank you I didn't sleep with her. Lord, I didn't say something that could have really messed stuff up. Thank you. Most of our victories are those which we count as not doing wrong. Not doing something right. We are so messed up that we really want an attaboy for not blowing it. Can you imagine if you coached baseball and the center fielder came in rejoicing as he's running in after the third out? Coach, 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 coach. I didn't drop the ball. You're not supposed to. That's why we have you out there. Why are you so happy about not dropping the ball? We'd all think something's wrong. Something's wrong. He's not trying to make a good play. He's trying to not make a mistake. And that's the way most Christians live their lives in terms of looking at victory. The juxtaposition here is pretty great. Because he talks about his sin. He says, if I don't confess it, I'm a mess. But when I do, you are always faithful to lead with mercy rather than judgment that I deserve. And I want you to know I'm grateful. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you. And we read it in such a way as to think, well, it's Bible, so it must be true. And so we don't, we don't dig deeper. But he hadn't talked about anybody who was godly in the first five verses. He talked about somebody who was in great need. Somebody who did ungodly things that needed forgiveness for. And there, then, then he says, just out of the blue, let everyone who is godly pray to you. Oh, this, this is the great contradiction that is us, is it not? I mean, we are, we are, we are representatives of Adam and Eve. And we are trying our best to run from them regularly. Yet, we are also people that are filled with the Spirit of God. 
and have been given his name as Christians, Christ-like, and are doing our best to try to live the way we should. And yet Adam, every once in a while, peeps through this wonderful godliness. And, 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 and all that we have tried to be is destroyed in an instant by an outburst of anger, by one moment of indiscretion, by a stupid word said. And we sit there as we watch these things happen like in slow motion and say to ourselves, that, that's not me. I, I didn't mean that. And we try to make excuse for it. And, and everything within the person who now has received the wrong action or the wrong words says, if it wasn't you, who was it? <laughs> Help me. You said it. You did it. If it wasn't you, who was it? Well, that's not the real me. Oh, that's part of you. The contradiction of I need forgiveness, yet I'm godly. I need God, yet I'm in, I'm in great need of, of, of mercy and grace. I try to be right, but I am so wrong. The thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I do want to do, I can't. I try to be right, but I'm not. I try to stop doing wrong, but I can't. That tension lives in us where Paul says, who will set me free from this bondage of sin? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That there is a bondage that all of us seem to gravitate toward. This tie that is around our foot, though we try to step with God, we feel this ball and chain pulling behind us regularly. But thanks be to God, that thing can be snipped. The key can be that which unlocks the, 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 the shackle and pulls it away from us. And we can walk in victory more often than not. And, 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 and you're not any longer destined to be 0 and 16. Listen, you may not be 16 and 0, but 11 and 5 ain't bad. I'll take it 11 and 5. 11 and 5, you go to the playoffs. Don't be the Patriots, but you go into the playoffs. I really don't like the Patriots, and I have no spiritual reason for it, but I'm not repenting. Let everyone, I'm serious, I'm not repenting. <laughs> Let everyone who is godly pray. Let everyone who is godly, piety. Boy, we need to pursue this which has been inserted in us. Meaning we are godly not because we act so. Though our godliness is evidenced by people when we do respond to that which has been put inside of us on the outside. Meaning, if we are supposed to do right, it's because we have become right. Becoming right allows you to be that which other people describe as godly. But there's no way we can be as godly as we ought to be unless we understand that there is something of a DNA spiritual insert a deposit that has been placed in our soul that should allow us like a homing call, a button that says, this is how you ought to be, a due north beacon, a lighthouse that constantly reminds us of what we are called to be in the highest order, godly. The Holy Spirit abides in you. Even though you might mess up, there is something on the inside that calls you back to a different standard. So though you may have, it doesn't mean you're not. You're his boy, you're his daughter. 
God wants you to remind yourself on a regular basis, I'm his. Therefore, I need to talk to him about stuff. That there is a piety that exists on the inside of you that needs to be expressed. The God of all holiness, who is holy, who defines holy, lives on the inside of you. And he wants to be expressed to everybody else you know. He wants there to be consistency between what you believe, what you say, and what you do. So that everybody out there says, that's what God looks like. Piety. So we need our thoughts, our heart, and our actions to be in line with Scripture. And it all comes from a real devotion, a love for God. That if He has saved you, if He has if you've gotten the revelation of him sending his son for your benefit and the cost that, it, that, w- that needed to be paid in order to get you right, the least you can do is devote every fiber of your being to his purpose. Every fiber of your being, all of your heart, your dreams, your motivations, your desires, everything to his purpose. He doesn't need to be an adjacent wing to the house of your life. He needs to be central. And if he's central, godliness will just ooze out of your pores. You barely have to try. If Jesus is on the throne of your heart, he just rules well. If you want to be a co-ruler with him, he'll wait till you finish. He'll wait till you finish and then have to clean up all you messed up. Piety. Let everyone who is godly And your godliness gives you the privilege of talking to him. Your sonship gives you the privilege of being heard differently. It's it's not that unbelievers can't talk to him and be heard. They can. But there's no question that when my children ask me questions, when they ask me requests of things from me, I listen differently than the rest of the other neighborhood kids. My ears are attuned to their cry. There are things that I've already prepared for them that I haven't prepared for other children. And as a result, when they begin to ask for that which I've already prepared, I'm ready to give. Though I may not be ready to give it to anybody else because I haven't prepared it for them. It doesn't mean I don't care about them. It just means I love these in a different way. And there's nothing wrong with loving in a different way. It doesn't mean you don't love the others. It simply means you're responsible to love these this way. I love my wife differently than I love all you other women. You better rejoice in that. This is your pastor talking to you. I do not deprive the love I'm supposed to give to you. I don't deprive you of that. I love you the way I'm supposed to, but I'm supposed to love her different, and I like it. (laughs) Nothing wrong with loving things different. God loves his kids differently than he loves the world. He doesn't deprive them of the love they need to receive. But he loves you different, and so when you talk to him, he hears you different. When you don't talk to him, you're depriving yourself of a relationship that could be developed. And so you need, with all of the godliness that is wired on the inside of you, even though you may not have all the theology to explain it, you need to use that as saying, Lord, this is the on-ramp to your presence. I'm coming. I'm coming. I need to talk to you. Godliness prepares a way for petition. Petition, the word there is uh, asking God. And lots of words for prayer in the Hebrew, but this one is asking him for intervention. I need you to intervene because there is a process that sin has taken in, in, in my life. Do wrong, feel bad, 
if I don't confess and repent of it, bear all the consequences. I need you to intervene right about here. I need you to help me with this consequence stuff. I need you to help me with this guilt stuff because I don't know how to get rid of it. I can't intervene. And God is a great intervener. Now there are some consequences for which you'll have to bear. No way around it. But even in the midst of those consequences, he come, comes with his mercy and strength to help you bear it. And he says, let everyone who is godly pray. And the sense is that it's not just everyone, but it's every one. So it's not just the individual that needs to pray. It's the people that need to pray as individuals. That we need to have an individual devotional life that, that is dynamite. I mean, just great. You need to talk to him regularly, and you need to listen to what he's got to say. In fact, you need to listen to what he's got to say much more regularly than you need to talk to him because you are not really a very good conversationalist when it comes to God. He knows what you're going to say before you say it, and it's really not that interesting. <laughs> but you do need to hear what he's got to say, and you do not know what that is unless you attune your ear to it. And so conversation with God is, is not a monologue of you to him. It is a few words from you and then perspective from him. How do you begin to learn to hear his voice? You read his word every day because that's how he sounds. You read your Bible every day because that's what he sounds like. And the only way you can recognize somebody's voice is if you've heard it a bunch of times. So a mama can hear her baby crying in the nursery with 20 other crying babies. And nobody else knows how she knows that that's her baby crying. Except the fact that she's heard all day and all night <laughs> this baby crying. And so when you learn to hear somebody's voice, you can recognize that voice amidst the cacophony of sounds all day long. The devil might be talking to you and lying to you. Folks might be giving you advice that's not good. Your own voice might be telling you stuff. Memories from the past might be flooding your brain. But sooner or later, God's going to peek through all of that and you can hear his voice if you know what he sounds like. And he will interrupt all of that and intervene and say, listen to me. Interpose with his will. That's what that means. God, intervene now. And we as a people need to have individual times that are consistent with respect to our devotion to God. Whether it's the morning, whether it's the afternoon, whether it's evening. For me, it's morning. I get up at 4 o'clock every day. Not because I'm so holy, believe me. That didn't have anything to do with it. I just wake up. No alarm. I'm just... And everything within me says, Lord, an hour more, please. I just like an hour more. I don't need to be up right now. I don't have anything to do right now. It's... So I just get up and I pray and I talk to him and I read my Bible and I have an audio Bible that I listen to to get some faith comes by hearing stuff. And so I listen to it in very different ways and interact with God in various ways. I do my workout, I'm learning Portuguese, so I do my Portuguese lessons, and in about three hours, I'm ready to say hello to you. But my wife is not like that. She starts her devotional life by 11.30 p.m. And so as I'm waking up at 4, she's going to bed at 1. Different ends of the spectrum. She's a not out, I'm an early bird. And so we, but, but I'm telling you, you can't find a, a more godly person on the planet than my, my wife. Oh, she loves Jesus. 
And I mean, she has a real relationship with him. And when she talks about what he said, I listen because I know she can hear. You need a devotional life that's regular and consistent. Secondly, you need to be a part of corporate prayer because it's not just each person. He's talking about everyone. All people need to come together. And as we pray together, there's something of a corporateness that is deposited in our soul that allows us a privilege of when we go out from our togetherness, we feel together even when we're not together because we had a moment of prayer about our community together. And now you feel the responsibility to be connected to folks that you aren't even working with, but you realize they got the same mission as you to help win the community. And when you're sharing the gospel, when you're praying for somebody, you realize you're doing it in concert with about 3,000 other people who are doing the same thing, that are praying together that God do something in our world. Let everyone who is godly talk to you, ask you to intervene, interpose with an oath and a promise to stop stuff and start good stuff. And then lastly, proximity. Therefore, he says, let everyone of godly pray to you in a time where you may be found. Now, this passage is not trying to say that there's a time when God can't be found. He's there at the darkest moments when you have blown it the most. It's not that he doesn't show up. He is so great and so merciful He is amazingly faithful to you even when you aren't faithful to him. There's nobody like our God. But you're not like him very much. Meaning he's faithful to show up for you. But you, me, we're not very faithful to show up for him. So when he says seek him in a time when he might be found, it's kind of a reference to this. Do it before you need 911. Everybody wants to find God when they are in the ditch of life. When they've had a wreck and they can't get out, they call the Holy Ghost tow truck. Pull me out, please, God. When all of a sudden, the little stick turned blue and she ain't your wife. Oh, you crying now. And you know what? He is so merciful. He'll come to help you. Okay? Let's start here. Now, if you had talked to me two months ago, there'd be no stick to turn blue. You should have sought me then. If you had sought me when I could be found then, it would have saved you a lot of trouble. But now you seek me afterwards. I'm still here. Let's go. You got more problems, but I'm going to help you. The emphasis is you seek him before you need to dial 911. Seek him in a time when he can be found early. Early, not late. You seek him late, he'll show up, but it's going to still hurt more. Seek him early. You don't seek him after you've already said yes to the relocation. They gave you a better opportunity. They said more money. Promotion, the whole works. 20% raise. You go from, from, from manager to C-level, corner office. They move you to Dallas from Washington. All good. Within three months, they're bankrupt. Lord, I need help. Yes, you do. I'm here. But you never asked me. It's September, and you got the offer in May. You never asked me whether you should take it. 
You're asking now? That's good. I'm going to help you. But you might have to move because your house is going to be foreclosed on. That's painful. I'm here for you, though. You want to seek him early in a time when he can be found, not late. Psalm 63 says, Lord, I will seek you earnestly. Earnestly. And that word earnestly in Psalm 63 actually means early. I will seek you earnestly, early. And as you do so, God shows up in ways that are amazing. Seek him in a time when he may be found so that the floodwaters will not come against you. They will depart. When you seek him early, you get close to him and the circumstances get far from you. That's a good deal. Now, it doesn't mean that your circumstances will sprout wings and fly away. Not always. Sometimes they will. Sometimes it's a circumstance that needs prayer, intervention, a miracle. Somebody needs healing. God does it. Boom, circumstance gone. It's a beautiful thing. Mountain be moved, it leaves. Wonderful. Can't beat that. And then there are times when the circumstances don't change, but you do. And you're able to go through them as if they don't exist anymore. I spent a lot of time with athletes, and uh, they just had the, the combine over in, in uh, Indianapolis. The combine is the uh, moment where they bring the supposedly the best collegiate football players into an environment and test them at certain things, strength, speed, agility, quickness, hands, throwing, jumping, running, all that. And uh, <clears throat> they got this one test where they do uh, bench press. You lie on a bench, for those of you who don't know, and you put weight on a bar and you lift it up. And it's 225 pounds. Everybody has to do it. Or everybody has to be at the exercise to do it. There are some more slight human beings that don't do it very well. And then there are some massive human beings that do it extraordinarily well. Me, I don't do it at all. <laughs> Bench press is not my thing. I'm not interested in it. I don't care. You can call me weak all day long in this one area. It makes no difference to me. I'm good. I'm fit in other areas, just not bench press. So you put 225 on the bar, I'm going to say, not happening. <laughs> the trial is too great for me. My muscles can't handle it. I don't train for that. And then there were linemen that actually did it like 33 times. You're just sitting there. Dude, you're acting like that's a feather. That's amazing. To me, it would just be boom. Help! Help! That's all it'd be. To him... One rep is nothing. Why? Because he's been through it so many times and trained himself to overcome that obstacle. For me, it takes me out. Circumstance not changed. Person did. Are you listening to me? There are things that you'll go through younger, and when you get too old, you think, eh. if you go in God, if you keep growing in God, then the circumstances that you faced once, now you come around Somebody's saying, you got to take the fourth grade over again. No, 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 I passed. I passed. I don't have to repeat. And you just, whoop, here, I'm gone, bye. Some circumstances don't change, but you do. And as a result, you can go through them differently with the grace of God empowering you to overcome much more easily than in the past. All that comes from talking to him and having a relationship and pursuing godliness the waters that want to drown you 
reach you. Either God says flee or you learn to swim really well. One or the other. And it all comes by his grace. This is what happens in the place of prayer and it can't happen anyplace else. It can't happen by listening to a good sermon. It can't happen by having great songs through which you find him in singing. It comes through prayer and getting to know him better and understanding who you are not and who you are with him. Life changes. David said, let everyone who is godly talk to you about all their issues. And that, that person will find you. And the floodwaters which want to drown out their witness and drown out their life won't reach them. Let's pray.